This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Jan, th- there's somebody else sitting at this desk. What's going on? I know. We have we have our very first author live in the studio. Is that what they look like? It is. I haven't seen is. one for two and years this live. This one's clever. This one's, this one's quite a good writer. And the book has many topics. Homelessness, post-traumatic stress, racism, animal abuse and the power of storytelling. It's also a book written for kids by Gabrielle Wang, who is the Australian Children's Laureate. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you, Jan. It's so such a pleasure to be here, live oh. in your studio. <laughs> oh, we're delighted to see you. Okay, so what are the responsibilities of being the Australian Children's Laureate? Okay, so it's a two-year appointment, so this year and next year. And I am going to be travelling all around Australia to every state and territory in Australia, speaking to mostly children, but also to librarians, teachers, parents, etc. Yeah. Well, you don't get the title of Australian Children's Laureate without having a, a bookshelf of books to your credit. I think I've chatted with you before, and it might have been nearly 20 years ago. How many books have you written, Gabriel? I think this one, this latest one, is my 21st. I've lost count. (laughs) I know you also do a series, Our Australian Girls, which is historical fiction, which if you don't know about it and you're a parent with young girls, get on to it. Zadie Ma and the Dog Who Chased the Moon. Now, this is the title of your book. And at the beginning, you have a photo of you and your grandfather with a dedication to Rusty and all the other dogs who were lost and didn't find a way home. So the dog who chased the moon could be the dog in this story? It is. Doesn't look like Rusty, Rusty, but... Um, I made him different, but he does have one blind eye like Rusty had, and he was a Rusty was a, an abandoned dog when I got him as a nine-year-old. And you and Zadie Ma share storytelling capabilities, but Zadie Ma has superpowers you may not have. I do have. <laughs> yes, I have written stories or a chapter, and it's actually come true. So, so the power of story. And she, she calls it this being a secret magician. What she wrote came true. To give an example of this, she saw her mum about to kill a whole line of ants. So explain what Zadie did. She tried with her little brother to try and you know, stop them coming because she loves all animals, like I do. And so she tried to turn them away, but it didn't work. And so she couldn't stand it any longer. She didn't want to watch her mum spray the, the the ants and so she went upset and she started to write a story about a little ant called Cassandra who turned the ants around except for one ant who was a bully ant and he led himself to, to his death because <laughs> he wouldn't listen to little ant Cassandra. Oh yes and when she came down all the ants had gone not killed by the mother. Well, let's hear a bit about uh, Zadie's family. There was the younger brother, Teddy, who you mentioned, and Zadie thought that mum loved him most. What about his, her mum? Just read a little bit about that mum. Mama worried so much. There was a deep fold between her eyes that could never be smoothed out, not even when she was sleeping. And Daddy's head was so full of worrying things, there was no room for peace inside it. 
But we do know that Zadie was called Zadie after Shahrazad <laughs> from the Arabian Nights, which was Mama's favourite book as a child. So there's these two areas that just don't fit and um, Zadie feels it. And what about Dad? How about hearing about Dad from the book? So his body might be sitting at the kitchen table or on the couch listening to the wireless, but his thoughts were far away. Zadie didn't want anyone to know that Daddy had terrible nightmares or that he cried a lot or that when he went into a rage, the best thing to do was to keep away. Shell shock is a terrible thing, Mr O'Leary said quietly. Shell shock, it's not a term that we Mm. speak about now, but it fits this because when's the book written? 1955, and I specifically chose that year because 1956, Melbourne had the Olympic Games and also television came to Sydney and Melbourne. And so I always feel that 55 was a innocent, the time before 56 was an innocent time in Australia. Yeah. You also talk about how biscuits came in the milk bar in, in big jars and why a young boy would be wearing calipers because polo, polo was rampant right then. Right. So what did Zadie want most? She wanted a dog, just like I wanted a dog when I was young, yeah. (laughs) This is a quote. A dog's love is the purest love of all, but dogs don't live on love alone. They cost money, and it was not a wealthy family. But new neighbours moved in next door with a menagerie of pets and a collie dog like Lassie. And not only did Sparrow, the kid next door, have a copy of Arabian Nights, so it was comfortable with Zadie and Shahrazad and storytelling. But in one day, he became the most popular kid in school because of his footy boots and marbles. Now, I enjoyed the gender fluidity of Sparrow. Had you done that on purpose? Well, I just I wanted Sparrow to be really unique. Zadie thinks when she meets him that he's a, a, a boy, but when he gets introduced as the new kid at school... In front of the class, his name's Eleanor. And so she suddenly realises, oh, he's a girl. But he dresses like a boy, cuts his own hair, and he, he's the best at marbles. He even beats the best kid at school and wins all the tombolas and all the marbles the kids, other kids have. And she, now I have to call her she, has brought her footy boots and doesn't want to be called Eleanor, wants to be called Sparrow because that's who she identifies with mm. and wants to be an explorer like a hero, Isabella Bird, who is a real person. Sparrow's advice to Zadie, if you want something bad enough, you've got to make it happen. So what does Zadie do? So Zadie writes a story about a lost and abandoned dog waiting for a girl to, be, to rescue it not knowing whether it's going to come true or not, because, of course, she can't predict which stories are going to come into reality. So she writes this and illustrates this comic about a a little dog, Jupiter, a one-eyed dog getting lost and maltreated and then found. Now, At the beginning of the book, we're told about a raven sitting watching. What's the superstition about ravens? I, I've got ravens in so many of my books because I just love ravens. I think they're oh, crows, ravens. We In Melbourne we have little ravens, they're called. And, and I think they've been so badly 
thought of, you know, even the word superstition or murder of crows. So I introduce, I love ravens. I always feel that there's a magical something happening when I see a raven. Well, quite often they are associated with the birds of doom and we get some bad things happening, like even when Zadie gets lost in the Badlands and Sparrow being suspended from school for stealing and Sparrow's dad saying, get out of my house, because Zadie is Asian and there's the fire. But whenever something bad happens, Zadie writes a story and often gives it to the person the hermit crap being given to the homeless man. It's the story about silverfish and butterfly, about friends. They're fable-type stories. So not only do we have the story of Zadie going through, but all of these stories of fables. You've got quite an imagination there, Gabriel <laughs> Wayne. Well, I think that um, everybody can have an imagination if they, if they keep using it, working with it. That's part of my thing as a showing towards laureate to encourage people to use their imaginations more. This whole thing about fables, the flea and the cockroach, <laughs> in a competition to see who is the most hated. Oh, phenomenal. <laughs> That's what I have to say about that. It's one of my favourite stories. <laughs> oh, that was so clever. Yeah. Have you ever thought about putting a whole series of fables together? Like I was it? thinking about that, that I could, I just have to put it past a publisher. Publisher, mm. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would go well and do illustrations myself for them as well. Yes, the illustrations here, as I mentioned, oh, it was another children's writer, Fiona Wood, came mm. in and when she was talking about how to spell catastrophe and she said what a good writer does, short chapters, lots of breaks, different stories going through and illustrations. And the illustrations in your book are just magnificent. And then I found out that you did them. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, golly. What a woman. So <laughs> Zadie Ma is 11 years old with the superpower of having her stories come alive. Will this help her to get a dog and be allowed to keep it? Gabriel Wang is Australia's Children's Laureate and Zadie Ma and the Dog Who Chased the Moon is her latest book. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thank you very much, Jan. Here is my interview with Amra Payalic. Short stories can give us an immediate glimpse into such issues as gender or multiculturalism. Amra Palich, in her collection, The Cuckoo's Song, tackles these ideas and much, much more. So, Amra, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to ask a very rude question, but I can because it's actually a point in one of your stories. Where are you from? Well, I'm going to give you the cheeky answer and go, Sanorbans. Exactly. Um, and this comes up <laughs> in, in your Suicide Watch story. Um, so I'm born in Australia, but I have migrant parents. And so this preoccupation with identity is something that I grew up with, this sense of where are you from, but you're Australian, but your name isn't Australian. But And then it became even more complicated because uh, my I was originally my parents were from Yugoslavia, but after the conflict of 1992 to 1995, Yugoslavia ceased to exist. And so in the midst of that, I was a teenager coming of age, coming into my own. 
And I was suddenly thrust into this role of being a foreign affairs reporter uh, and people asking me questions. So originally, if they asked me where I was from and I couldn't get away with the Sinorban shtick, um, I would say Yugoslav. But suddenly people knew that Yugoslavia had all these different states and there was something going on. So, you know, they were educated enough in terms of, so are you Bosnian? Are you Croatian? Are you Serb? And then I'd say I'm Bosnian. And then it'd be like, so are you Muslim? Then I would be like, well, yes, I guess you could say I'm Muslim, even though Yugoslavia was communist and we weren't raised with religion. And then it would be like, so if you are Muslim, why are you not covered? Well, we are, you know, from the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, which is secular, and we didn't cover. That was not part of our cultural heritage. So it would just lead to all these questions. And I found myself going through these ridiculous conversations, trying to, you know, find an answer that would just stop it, that would just stop that conversation. But embedded behind that is an attitude of, ignorance in some ways on behalf of the person asking the question yeah I think I mean I I'm you know from a multi from a different ethnic background I work in a school where we have 200 languages and you know in an area so I don't have an issue with um wanting to find out cultural heritage and wanting to embrace that and wanting to have a conversation about that it's just um, the way that that conversation can occur. So where are you from feels very intrusive. And the suggestion there is you don't belong from here. You are not from here. You need to justify why you are here. And that is a very difficult conversation to have, especially when you are coming of age. Um, now it's something that I have, you know, gone through and mediated and, and have no issue with. Um so the conversation from the perspective of where is your name from, where is what is your cultural heritage, um, you know, oh, um, are your parents migrants? Or, you know, having those conversations and that shared understanding of culture, I love that. Uh, I just really struggle with where are you from? It, it just, you know, there is that implication that by being from an um, ethnic background and having another language and having a name that is not a typical what we think of as Australian Anglo name it almost implies that there's something wrong and it's taken me quite a few decades to come to this side of it and be so proud of my heritage and my culture and my ethnic identity and my migrant parents who came to Australia and you know worked so hard in this country and who contributed to so yeah it's it's a very interesting you know conversation another story you have is called siege and this echoes now and resonates today when you see what's happening in ukraine but it's about a totally other war that's right. So that story, that was one of the first successes that I had as a short story. It was published in the Best Australian Stories um, back in the day when Black Ink did that anthology every year. And it's inspired by my um, in-laws, by my husband's family who actually survived the siege of Sarajevo. And so they lived for four years, um, you know, locked up in a basement while snipers and shells were occurring and so it's very much about what the experience of conflict is on the day-to-day -day, the way that people are still living and making lives and still trying to dream of a future 
while at the same time being confronted with death on a, you know, every second of the day. But how is this still happening, really? Because it's about a previous war and you see it still happening. Have we not learned anything? No, and there's still that same echo of during that conflict, there was this sense of abandonment by NATO and by the international community that the Bosnian uh, residents felt who were besieged. Um, they had an embargo, so they couldn't get their hands on weapons while um, the uh, other side actually got access to the military arsenal from former Yugoslavia. And so there are also echoes in that in terms of these conflicts occur. They're occurring, you know, in the middle of Europe in the 20th century. People who are living within these conflicts are living under medieval conditions in terms of not having access to food, plumbing, you know, the basic necessities of life. And, you know, we've got this amazing world that we live in now with interconnecting with each other and knowing about what's going on. And yet these things are still occurring. These, you know, these people um, these wars are still occurring. And, and then it sends aftershocks through the whole community. Like my daughter is quite unsettled. She's 13 years old. And, you know, TikTok is quite amazing because it does give young people so much information and it does give them access to world events. Like she's so much more informed and savvy than I was at her age. And so she, she's actually been full of fear about are we entering World War Three? Is this the end? What's happening? And so, you know, it does have a psychological effect, not just on the communities who are directly impacted by the war, but also on all young people everywhere in terms of this, this unsettlement and this, this sense of what is this world that we are living in? Well, speaking about young people, a lot of the stories look at girls going through a, their stage of development. In the School of Hard Knocks, it's almost innocent where girls are sort of living vicariously through other girls in terms of, well, I'll tell him you want to be his boyfriend type yeah, girlfriend and, and I'll uh, dump him for you and all that. It's just delightful. Oh, thank you. All of my stories are inspired by real life, either by things I have gone through or things that I know others have experienced or I've researched. And so that particular story um, is inspired by my experiences of coming back to Australia. I lived in Bosnia for four years between the ages of eight to 12. And those are those developmental years where you learn about a lot of things. And so I came back as a 12 year old in year seven and I missed uh, conversations about what periods were. I didn't know what a tampon was. And so suddenly I'm in the midst of a Australian high school um, because I was being raised by, by my grandparents. I lived with them for four years who were incredibly conservative. Um, when we had a veterinarian coming in to inseminate a cow, I was asked to leave the barn. Um, and when I was asking a question, they actually pretended I didn't say anything because it was so shameful for me to even ask a question about insemination of a cow. Well, this notion of cultural propriety comes up in other stories, especially where women are concerned as well. But we are going to have to move on. And I've got a, a sort of stylistic question for you because... There, in two stories, there is a similar event where you've sort of repurposed an action that's taken place, but 
for a different reason, for a different outcome. And I'm just wondering in terms of the power authors have to do such things. I think, you know, there's that saying that your first book or your first works are very much autobiographical and there is an element there and then there also is an element of, you know, as writers we are magpies, we collect shiny things and we put them in our nest and sometimes the shiny things are from us where we're like, oh, look, I I have something, I did something, I'll put that back. But also there is a process of um, my writing process. So when I am working on a book and those stories were originally, I wanted to write a memoir for a very long time, but I was very intimidated by the thought of it. So initially I conceived a lot of these experiences as fiction uh, and that gave me that safety to be able to remove myself from it. And then slowly I forayed into memoir and writing about myself and actually putting myself out there. And so um, as and writing stories and writing short fiction is about building a portfolio, creating audiences, um, and also, you know, books take a long time. So it's about getting those little moments in the sun uh, in between. But you can take those moments and reshape them, repurpose them, which is really a gift for writers when they're developing their craft. But look, Amra, I'm going to have to call the, an end to the interview, unfortunately. We're running out of time. But the collection is called The Cuckoo's Song. The author, Amra Payalic, and it's a Pishukan Press release. So, Amra, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, David, for having me on and thank you for reading my stories. It's always good to hear people talking about them and seeing what resonated and how. It means so much. Hello, I'm John Fain. I used to work at the ABC when I had a microphone. But here I am in front of a microphone at 3CR and what an absolute pleasure it is to be back here for the first time in about 35 years. I wish you all the very best for your Radiothon. I hope you raise buckets and buckets of money because 3CR is a really important part of the media landscape in this city, this state and this country. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.